Today's podcast is brought to you by Isoway Sports, the sports range for athletes looking for supplements that are free from all artificial colours, flavours, sweeteners and added fructose. Intense physical training programs place significantly higher nutritional demands on sports people, and Isoway Sports are committed to providing pure nutritional ingredients that are truly complementary to a healthy, active lifestyle. You can visit isoasports.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me, actually, in the studio today is Dr. Lise Alsler, naturopathic physician from the States. Good morning, Lise. How are you? Very good, especially with this very fine coffee that you introduced to me this morning. (laughs) Unfortunately, I couldn't uh, bring along the very fine weather as well. (laughs) Now, Lise, I've followed you. I've known you since 2010 when you absolutely enamoured me and cemented my passion into helping patients through their cancer therapy. And one of the things that I really loved about you is you've not just walked the path of the practitioner, but also the patient. Can you take me through the history of what happened, how you felt, and how, how you fared through your treatment? You know, actually, I'm going to start back a little bit further, if I can, because um, so I was working at a cancer specialty hospital in the States as a naturopathic doctor, which was fantastic. And so my day was consumed with helping people with cancer. And I felt like I had really gained a lot of knowledge about this disease, was seeped in it, and, you know, gosh, what more could I learn? Famous last words, because uh, then I got a call that my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He was given a very, very poor prognosis. And uh, given what I knew, it was right. His prognosis was quite bad. Mm. But um, over the next, instead of three months, as his doctor said, 17 months, he actually lived really exceptionally well. And I uh, saw in that experience the power. You know, I had worked with patients, but it's different when it's your own family. Mm. And so I saw him go through conventional treatments, clinical trials, and always integrative medicine along with that. And boy, it was just phenomenal. I mean, he even said about a year into his diagnosis, he I remember the moment very clearly. We were sitting together on this porch in the sun and drinking green tea, of course. And uh, he turned to me and said, you know, I just want to thank you because I feel better now than I felt for 20 years. And I mean, wow. this man had pancreatic cancer throughout his entire lymphatic system. So mm-hmm. it was just really phenomenal. And um, so that that was just a, an important experience. So after that, I thought, okay, now now I know what I need to know about this disease. But of course, <laughs> famous last words, don't ever say that. Um, then I, about three years later, was diagnosed with breast cancer myself. And uh, it was quite a, quite a surprise, I have to say, because I didn't have any obvious risk factors. Since then, I've discovered some things that genetically might have predisposed me a bit. But um, in my experience, I utilized conventional or traditional medicine. So I had surgery. I had chemotherapy, I had radiation, and then I had hormonal treatment, anti-estrogen therapy. But um, throughout that, utilized uh, all the therapies that I recommend to my patients. So, you know, I made some diet changes. I made sure I exercised every day. I took a lot of supplements. And I can say very confidently that even though I did experience some side effects, I recovered from them really well. 
and I always had this really deep sense of health throughout my treatment. So I never felt like a sick person. I never felt like I was um, kind of declining or dwindling in any way, but really just felt well. And um, and since my treatment have felt very healthy as well. Mm. You know, I, I know there's no guarantees, but I have experienced on a very personal level the power of combining complementary and conventional treatment. There's really, I, I can't emphasize enough how critical this is, in my opinion, that every person diagnosed with cancer on this planet should have the option to be able to combine these therapies because we can do it in a scientifically sound manner. We can do it in a way that won't threaten the integrity of their conventional treatments and will, in fact, optimize their wellness and even make those conventional treatments more effective against their cancer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a uh, – I'm on a diatribe now, so mm, you, I'll mm. stop there. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to say I could listen to that all day. Lise, so many things. There, there's so many points in, in your few sentences there. And the first one that I picked up was – you were sitting on the porch in the sun drinking a cup of green tea. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that somebody who has a diagnosis of cancer, as long as they're in that right frame of mind, simple things become special. Mm -hmm. They become a blessing. Right. Tell me about how you engender that to patients who might not be in the right headspace. What do you, what do, you do? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that one of the the gifts of cancer. As I, as I say, cancer is a blessing, but a severe blessing, or a teacher, mm. but a harsh teacher. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the blessings that comes out of cancer is, you know, when people are diagnosed, they are confronted with their own mortality in a very acute way. And with that comes the realization of, wow, so my, I'm not immortal, and I better think about what's important to me. And it can happen quickly, it can happen gradually, but very commonly people diagnosed with this disease go through uh, a reevaluation of their priorities and really come out of that with a sense of living in the moment and how precious this moment is, especially with cancer, because there's so many things that change day to day, your symptoms, um, even, you know, tomorrow's scan or the treatment coming up. So you just have to stay in today. And then when you're living in the present, you start to to really pay attention to your relationships with others and to the moment that you're in. And you do, as you say, start to appreciate the sun on your back, mm. the warm cup of tea in your hand, the person you love sitting next to you, and uh, find ultimately in that deepest moment of moments that really the only thing that animates it is love. And I think that that's ultimately the most wonderful thing that comes out of this diagnosis is really a, an affirmation of the fact that, that what ties our sinews together is love and that the more we can be in love with life, mm. the better life is. Perfectly said. Let's move on now to when you found the lump, that moment that you discovered a lump inside of you and the realisation that something might be wrong and proceeding to investigations. Can you talk me through what happened? Yeah, actually, that's a good question, too, because here I am, cancer specialist. So you would think I found my lump, but I did not, Oh, actually. So I went in for my annual examination, which was, that was good on me, I suppose. And my doctor found the lump, which was an interesting lesson for me, because I think that doctors are not the best patients, right? So mm -hmm. 
you know, that was a, a good reminder that, hey, I actually need to pay attention to my own body and walk my talk, do self-breast exams, et cetera. But uh, so I did not find it. And I was uh, it was so, so surprising. It was kind of like this dissonant thing in my world. So I just I didn't actually have a very strong emotional reaction to it at mm. first mm. because I didn't think it was anything. In fact, initially and neither did the doctor. She said, you know. I think that uh, we could probably just monitor this for a bit of time and see how things go. And fortunately, my partner said, no, 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 we're going to get this checked out. Yeah. So, you know, and we did, and it was a good thing. But, wow. um, you know, my patients really experience, like, and I put myself in this, sort of a varying uh, a spectrum of emotions that range from, wow, what the heck happened? And can be terrifying, you know, the really it can be a terrifying experience. Mm. Um, in fact, there's been some studies now that have uh, told us that cancer, the diagnosis of cancer can act as a stress and people can actually go into post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. which is interesting because then everything about their cancer treatment re-triggers yep. that stress. So they go into kind of this, this fugue state, if you will. Yep. Not really present with what's happening, and that's why you know it's so important for people to have a companion that comes with them to doctor's visits, takes notes, you know, is listening because people just don't remember no. because they're kind of in this stressed state. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm sure that was true for me to some extent. Uh, I think that um, a lot of people also feel very f every anywhere from bewildered to betrayed, and. Um, on that betrayal note, I would say that something I've really seen a lot of is that there's a sense of people's own body having betrayed them. And this is especially true for people who feel like they've lived a fairly healthy lifestyle. Mm. You know, mm. I've eaten well, I've exercised, I still got, what's going on? Mm. And I think that can be a hard thing to heal, but healing it is really important a part of the, the overall healing process to kind of reestablish a, a gratitude and a sense of confidence in our body and in our health. So now that you're aware of these these things that can happen, do you actively make sure that your patients know about the, those steps to sort of ratify what's happening in their body, that it's not their fault necessarily, mm -hmm. that these things just sometimes happen mm -hmm. uh, and we don't always know why? Yes. Um, do you act actively take them through that? Absolutely, I do, and um, often will share a bit of my story, not to take the attention off of them, but just to sort of normalize their own experience a bit and say, hey, look, you know, I was in that situation too. I was healthy and I got cancer, but um, and, yeah, and I think it's important for people to, because then they can sort of relax a little bit around getting out of the self-reproach and, and sort of the self-blame and the betrayal and, and just integrate it into, okay, well, here I am, now what? Um, I recently gave a, a talk at AMA, the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association Conference, and one of the things I said was that when people enter into this diagnosis, they often ask a question, why me? You know, why me? And instead, the way I encourage people to ask that question, rephrase it a bit, is to ask the question, why not me? Mm. Why not me? Mm. And that, because by flipping that question a bit, why me sort of says, I'm a victim of this yeah. and how can this happen to me? Why not me? Sort of pulls me into the experience and says, okay, I'm here. Mm. Now let me get what I can out of it. 
and let me contribute what I can to it. And it's a much different way of approaching the disease and I think can be quite transformative. And that's very important because pessimism is a separate sort of risk factor for outcome, isn't it? Right, yeah. Of all the emotional states, pessimism or hopelessness is really tightly linked with increased risk and increased progression. Um, so it's a very important thing to try to manage and to acknowledge first, of mm. course. You know, mm. I think that when people are feeling pessimistic, um, the first step is to reach for help, which can be hard. So mm. then the provider, the practitioner needs to be able to look for signs of that to inquire on the part, you know, with their patients, how they're feeling, and then really try to provide them with as much care and resource and referral as necessary to, to allow people to experience a greater twin- tranquility in their, in their outlook. One of the interesting things to me is how people feel or, or react to uh, a diagnosis of uh, a sexual organ, whether it be breast. Oh, I'm, actually, I'm going to concentrate on breast and maybe uh, testicles for men, mm-hmm. where it's an, an easily palpable organ or tissue um, versus the internal type of diagnosis. Let's say a sarcoma or a pancreatic cancer or a lung cancer. Do you find a different attachment of feeling to those sort of cancers? Yeah, you know, there's um, certainly I think that uh, having cancer of the breast or of the testicles or even the prostate, I would say, it, it affects one's uh, sense, uh, sort of one's uh, sexuality in Mm. a sense or Mm. one's sexual identity. And um, that can have implications in both during treatment. People often feel very unattractive and, uh, you know, kind of hunker in on themselves. And um, they have to really redevelop a new identity and to reconnect with with that sense of being a woman or mm. being a man and and so yes i think that that's a very significant can be a very significant part of the experience for people and you know i think that now thankfully uh you know we can say the word breast cancer i mean 20 years ago you know it would be like cancer you know it's just like you were embarrassed to even talk about it or men but i still think we're there with men i feel still think there's this Testicular cancer, the poor guy, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet with men, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's true. I would say even with prostate cancer. I mean, yeah. men are a little more comfortable with prostate cancer, but I think especially men who go through treatment and develop sexual difficulties afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, they're very hesitant yeah. to talk about it with good reason because there's there's so much in our society that that tells us our sense of self-worth is about being a man and, you know, doing the manly thing mm. and... Um, and, you know, of course, we know that that's really not our sense of our, our worth comes mm. from our humanness and, and how we how we are in the world. But um, that that's part of this this journey is to, you know, and that's another expression really of being able to uh, detach from things that aren't really important in that when you're living in the moment where there's that unconditional love, then those things become very secondary. But but of course, it takes a while to kind of get there. So you wouldn't see that sort of threat of vital of of sexuality in a lung cancer for instance but but there is still that fear of mortality and what I wanted to explore was with regards to fear you've certainly got that initial oh my goodness something's happening I'm I may actually die and then you've got these other fears that come in mm-hmm. down the treatment path tell me about 
what are the fears? What are the common fears that, that come up and how do you address them? Yeah, there's so much fear. So first of all, I often talk to my patients when they're experiencing fear about Uh, And I talk to them about the fact that fear is really one side of a two-sided coin because when we're afraid, we're afraid of losing something, which which is really saying there's something behind that that we love, that we cherish, and that we're afraid of losing. So you know, kind of help people trans transform that sense of fear into, okay, this is actually an expression of how much I love my life or how much I love my family or, you know, whatever it might be. And so... That sort of allows us to get a little bit of an upper hand on the fear so it doesn't just overtake us. Um, But then on a more practical level, I think that the most important thing that people can do to combat the fear, and there's fear of, gosh, everything. There's scan fear, scan anxiety, scanxiety as we call it. Mm. There's fear of the treatment and the effects of treatment. There's fear of, you know, the, the can we get the upper hand on this disease. I mean, there's you know, the fear of not being able to work. I mean, there's so many fears. But mm. I think with every fear, the most important thing is to be able to step back and say, okay, so what can I do as my next step? And to just really come up with a plan for the next step. And then once you're there, okay, now what's my step after that? And to take it one step at a time, literally, because the only place fear lives is in the future. It there's no room for it in the present moment. So the more we can just kind of stay close and just take it one step at a time, the easier it is to sort of maintain your sense of control over the process. Were you always this positive? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know how to answer that, but I, I ha- actually have always um, been accused of such. When you are a child, <laughs> seriously, were you always the bright one that always looked on the positive side and cup was always half full? Yeah, I would say. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Testimony to your parents' upbringing. Yeah, maybe you know. I think um, I think uh, I, I would actually say yes to my parents because they were very encouraging. Of gave us lots of space to develop as our own individuals and to really explore the world and all that it holds. So yeah. Let's delve into some more treatment orientated things. So, how do you find the difference between and, and, and I'm going to pick on breast cancer because you spoke of your experience the usefulness of fine needle aspiration um, versus core biopsy? Well, I I think for the most part, fine needle aspiration is quite effective. And um, that being said, of course, it's a smaller specimen, so it can miss, in a larger tumor especially, it can miss kind of key features of the tumor. Um, So core needle biopsy becomes even more helpful. The, The concern among some complementary practitioners especially is that with the corneal biopsy there's concern that since it's a sort of a larger specimen removal that there might be more chance of spread but in actuality the the there's a less than 1% increased risk of spreading the disease through biopsy so i think it's important that practitioners don't counsel patients away from the appropriate biopsy and um uh, I, I would say even though fine needle biopsy can work, I think more and more, I, I was trying, just trying to think in my head, but I think more and more I'm seeing core needle biopsy done first and just skipping over the fine needle because it, it does get a better view of the tissue. And now we're looking at more things in the tissue, so we need a bigger sample. Mm. We're doing a lot more staining to come out with uh, parameters of the tumor itself that have very significant implications for the kind of treatments that people will beginning eventually, the the staging of the disease, and so it's important. Is, is part of that issue, like, 
uh, it's sort of like a retrospective validation of the test. Um, if you have breast cancer, then the only way to really get into that would be to have a, a core biopsy where fine needle aspiration might miss something. Right. However, mm-hmm. if you didn't have breast cancer and you had fine needle aspiration, right. then that was fine. Right. So right. it's sort of like, right. so is medicine then treating it from, well, that was the retrospective view. The prospective view is we don't want to overtreat. Is is that why they do the FNA first? Uh, I think it's more to do with uh, really what presents on imaging. So um, sometimes it's just fine needle aspiration is a little bit easier to do depending on the characteristics of the tumor. But I think in reality, you know, the preference would be to do core needle biopsies. That Sometimes tumors are so small that a core needle biopsy would almost remove the entire tumor, mm-hmm. which sounds good, but uh, th- that can actually present some challenges later if uh, th- there was, you know, some disruption of the capsule and things yeah. like that. So, yeah. Yeah. But generally, I think corneal biopsy is just a better way to, to diagnose the full extent of the disease. Tell me about the results of the biopsy and how that relates to then to treatment. So this is actually an exciting area for me because we are learning more and more about characteristics of tumors that have implications or have uh, some prognostic significance. So, for example, with breast cancer, what we're seeing now on pathology reports from biopsies that we didn't see, gosh, even ten, five, ten years ago, was uh, is something called KI-67. So in addition to the typical uh, looking at receptor markers, so we know that pathology reports come out with estrogen receptor positive or negative, progesterone receptor positive or negative, HER2 new receptor positive or negative, and those, I'll I'll get back to KI-67 in a moment, but the estrogen, progesterone, HER2 new really help us to to classify the breast cancer into one of three subtypes of breast cancer. So we now know there's actually different types of breast cancer, and this is important because each type has different prognostic um, variables around it as well as different treatment options, and the receptor status really determines which subtype. Uh, of breast cancer somebody has. In addition to that, we now can get KI-67, which is a marker of proliferation. So a KI-67 that's high would indicate a more aggressive tumor and therefore the need potentially for more aggressive systemic treatment. So these kind of things are really helping to classify just on the biopsy whether somebody diagnosed with breast cancer should in fact get systemic treatment or could possibly avoid, say, chemotherapy. So we're giving more, we're putting more data into the situation to give more choice to the woman. So we, you know, we have the receptor status, we have KI-67, the pathology report from the biopsy can give us a sense of lymphovascular invasion, which is another characteristic of, that will help us determine how aggressive this tumor is and how likely it might be to have spread. So all these things now, you know, with more information, there's more empowered choice both on the part of the oncologist as well as on the part of the woman or man with the breast cancer. So I think that that is really just good development. And there's more things coming. Hmm. You know, I think soon we're going to start to see with breast cancer a report out of insulin growth factor 1 receptors because we're finding that has significance to the prognosis as well as to future diet implications. So um, I, I find this whole area quite exciting, actually. 
That's an interesting thing you say about this proliferative factor. When you put it into a context of a cancer not being a cancer, rather being a cancers. So you spoke recently at the biocidicals workshop that you've been doing around Australia about selective survival. So when you knock off one type of cell, it might have the you know the rat sack effect. You might actually um, encourage the survival of more belligerent cells. So tell me how this sort of fits in when we're looking at picking off a certain type of cell with regards to the whole tumour mass and even load. Yeah, I mean, that you're bringing up a really important point. And so when I talk about KS67, that's looking at what percentage of the cells are in active cell division. So that that's kind of a generalization across a whole population. It's as if we were doing a flyover on a city and we were looking at which neighborhoods were expanding fast and then we generalized it to the whole city. Yeah. But in reality which neighborhood is expanding fast is the, the sort of the crux of the matter because right. that's where we need to target yeah. our therapies. And and we're learning a bit about this. Like, So let's just say we're the immune system and we're doing that flyover and we see this colony of you know aggressively expanding neighborhoods. We've got to rein things in. We go down and we attack as best we can. And unfortunately, though, the immune system tends to attack those cell populations within this tumor that are most susceptible to the immune system's attack. In the meantime, the neighboring cell population may have some inherent resistance to that immune attack. So in, a, in essence, our own immune reactivity creates a survival of the fittest, if you will, or as mm. you said, the belligerent cell types live on. Mm. And with that, then now we have a cancer that's progressing that's somewhat immune resistant. So the trick then becomes to knock it down enough and to turn on the the rec- some danger signal in that s- in that cell population that the immune system can recognize and attack, and and again that this is just an opportunity where we can use our knowledge from an integrative standpoint because we're really good at supporting immune function and really good at at doing that in a very specific way, and turning on that immune system so that we can get the immune system involved while the oncologists are working on the tumor from you know, a chemotherapy standpoint or radiation standpoint. So, you know, that's a really nice way that we can envision this this synergy. And, uh, yeah, that's that's hopefully among the many things I'm trying to convey on this bioceuticals tour, which I'm enjoying quite a lot, <laughs> my dad. And this is where the importance, I think, of of supporting the human host, if you like, through the medical therapy with beautiful, safe, natural therapies. It, it just rings home, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. You know, there's a graphic that I often show in my presentations, and I'll try to describe it so the listeners can visualize it. So you have a two circles, one inside the other, and the small circle in the middle represents the tumor. So all of oncology, traditional oncology, has basically been focused on that small circle. So it's all directed against the tumor. But hey, that circle lives in a bigger circle, and that bigger circle represents the self, the person. And so what I think integrative therapies do is they focus on the self. And not only is that important to help that self withstand the treatments directed against the tumor, but we also know that there's a lot that the tumor, a tumor can't grow all by itself. It actually needs the assistance of the self, believe it or not, to, to facilitate its growth. There's a lot of co-optation of the immune system and of the stromal tissue within which that tumor is growing to facilitate its growth. So if we can, through our integrative therapies, because we're so good at addressing and changing the milieu of the body, if we can make some of those shifts, then we can create a body that, as I say, 
moves away from cancer instead of towards it. It creates an inhospitable environment that makes it more difficult for cancer to grow. And that's a really key, key you know, component of cancer care that's really unfortunately been left out of oncology. So I, I think that there's just such a tremendous opportunity for a synergistic blending of integrative therapies with the conventional ones. Yes. And I really, I really want to, I want to hammer home the importance of the integration of conventional therapy with supportive therapies. And I might add safe supportive therapy. How do you try and get the message across that what you're doing is evidence-based to whatever evidence we have, but at least it's supported by evidence against those people who are crystal wavers, you mm-hmm, know, and mm-hmm. doing really unsafe therapies. You know, this is such a difficult issue because here's the, th- here's the thing. Cancer, there is no cure for cancer. Mm. So, <clears throat> and it's a serious, scary disease. So we have this big vacuum within which it it's really creates a perfect op- opportunity for charlatans and, you know, false hope sayers mm. to jump in with these really, frankly, crazy therapies, some of which are actually quite harmful mm. to people. Yeah. And especially in the sense that they could distract somebody away from a potentially life-saving therapy. So, you know, I too have some anger about this because I think that people who are diagnosed are exceptionally vulnerable to these false hopes because they're scared out of their minds. And somebody comes along with a false promise of, you know, hey, I can cure you with no side effects and just stick with this program for three months. You're going to do it unless you have guidance. So I think this is really the role of well-qualified practitioners from an integrative standpoint as well as a conventional one, ideally communicating with one another, mm-hmm. but certainly people who can avail themselves of these these talents that exist within the practitioner world can get some sound guidance. And when we when patients are in that situation, now they're using, you know, hey, let's strip off the labels first of all. I frankly don't care if it's so-called conventional or so-called complementary therapies with cancer. This is an aggressive disease. It doesn't, you know, give us any excuses. It's going to go all out and kill us unless we do something about it. So as far as I'm concerned, let's put all the tools on the table and let's use the most powerful and the most effective tools available, regardless of what label they happen to be tagged by. And I think with that approach, then we have to say, well, okay, so how do we decide that? And that's where evidence comes in. You know, the evidence base for complementary therapies is, of course, less robust than that for oncology, although there is some oncology that's not evidence-based. Absolutely. Um, but we use the best evidence we can. We make logical decisions. We really think through our therapies. We um, try to, to guide patients without false hope but with what I call informed hope. Yeah. So we, we share our evidence with the patients so they fully understand why we're doing what we're doing and what they can expect from it. And, and I think one of the things that, that is really important when you're dialoguing with the oncologist or the, or the doctor who's managing that patient is to provide or be able to provide evidence such that there is, it may not be level A1, but some evidence to support your um, supportive care. Right. And actually, I want to paraphrase uh, a wonderful naturopath that I met at the last biocidical seminar here in Sydney. She said it really well. She said, you know, when I'm working with patients, what I do is I first of all, make sure that I don't tell my patient that anything they sa- their oncologist told them is wrong. Mm-hmm. So I don't disagree with their oncologist. Absolutely. And she said, and then I, from there, I, you know, if I have a s- different opinion, I'll offer my opinion. And I'll offer it in a way 
that says, hey, look, you know, here from my experience and my review of the evidence, here's what I think. And she communicates all that back to the oncologist. And I think that the level of respect that she spoke about is exactly right. We need to have a a strong respect. Everybody's trying to help the patient, believe it or not. You know, oncologists are not doing this because they don't have anything better to do. They're doing this because they want people to... They care. Yeah, they care. So I think the more that we can recognize that and kind of become brethren, brotherhood, you know, whatever that saying is with our (laughs) oncologists, then we all become a part of the same team. And conveying the evidence to oncologists is a bit of a challenge. You know, they have limited time and our evidence is different than the kind of evidence they look at. They're looking at big multi-center trials with thousands of patients and ours are usually a few hundred. So it's just kind of a different thing. But but just a note on that real quick, the um, oncologists, when they look at thousands of people in their trials, it's because their trial, their their subject matter is very toxic. So they need to do a lot more bigger trials to prove its efficacy given how toxic yeah, it is. Yeah. When we're doing a, a study on, gosh, you know, panics, ginseng or, or American ginseng, and there, there's so little toxicity that, that the need for those huge trials is a little different. So, you know, that's one of the things I talk to oncologists about is just that kind of risk-benefit ratio. Yeah. And then um, mostly oncologists are concerned that whatever I recommend doesn't interfere with what they're doing. So, you know, I sp- communicate that state that that I've researched. There's no known drug-herb interactions. You know, I make that statement over and over in my note to them so that they see that I'm thinking about that and then they can kind of have more confidence. And um, I think just just communicating in whatever way, even if they just read a sentence or two, it helps them to sort of yeah. get a sense of, okay, there's some validity behind this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you made the point about, you know, uh, oncological therapy having having to be done on, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of patients. But sometimes the tumour is so rare that that data just isn't available. And right. so they default then to the safest, mm-hmm. best, most efficacious that they have. And that may indeed be, uh, um, let's say, I won't say theoretical, but, it, you know, based on the little evidence that they have. Right. Um, we're talking here about rare tumors. Right, but, rare but tumors. even common tumors. I mean, frankly, uh, there's never been a randomized control trial on surgery for breast cancer. So, I mean, from a technical standpoint, that's a bit of a non-evidence-based therapy. But of course, it works. And of course, we're going to do it. But, you know, so I think there's a lot that's evolved in medicine. Mm. And so the evidence for it is really from a a practice sense. And and in many ways, alternative or complementary practitioners utilize that same evidence base. But I think what now we have the availability to do, and really as integrative practitioners, the responsibility to do is to take that historical, traditional body of evidence and validate it. So we can validate it now with mechanistic understanding, and we can validate it increasingly by looking at clinical trials. And thank goodness, I just want to give a big thanks to all the researchers out there around the world that actually dedicate time to researching natural substances yeah. because, I mean, that's transformed my practice and there's not a lot of money in it. And It's very hard to patent. It's very hard to patent, Very hard right? to patent an egg. <laughs> right. So I really appreciate the researchers that are focused on this because it's, it's truly, um, it's been life changing for many, many people across the planet. And I would ask oncologists to open up their minds to say, you can't patent an egg. It's very, very hard to do that. And so that huge amount of evidence can't be gained by one company throwing millions and millions of dollars at it. It, right. it just wouldn't make – Pfizer wouldn't do it. Right. So it doesn't make commercial sense for any one company. So it is reliant on these dedicated researchers from various institutions 
to do smaller trials that have evidence. But what I would like to see, we've done a lot of preclinical trials, and I certainly believe we need the, um, you know, the, the safety data and, and the phase one trials to show that it's non-toxic. But I think now we are at the stage where we need some translational stuff. Mm -hmm. For instance, how does curcumin work in humans taking cyclophosphamide? Well, you know, we yes, yeah, so that's an example. We do need a clinical trial on that, but uh, there's more. But there's a lot of clinical trials out there, so we have a good body of translational research to build upon. Mm, yes. So it's not like we're starting from zero. No, no, no. There's a lot of good data on on let's because we're talking about curcumin and it is the poster child mm -hmm. of of supportive care through cancer. Um, there's a lot of good data showing how it works with many chemotherapeutic agents. What we need to understand is what are the shortfalls and do uh, what are the shortfalls from in vitro and, and animal models and how does it translate to humans? So important and I, just to to tag on that um, one of my pet peeves actually is when we have an, a preclinical, so an in vitro cell study showing some kind of interaction between an herb mm. and a drug. Mm. And then we say, well, then that is contraindicated in somebody. Because nine times out of ten, when that is studied in people, the interaction is non-relevant. Mm. Makes sense because when herbs are ingested, since we've grown up from, as a species eating herbs, we have a lot of metabolism of those herbs. So what's tested in the Petri dish is totally different than what the cell sees. Our bacteria metabolize the herb into different components. Our liver further metabolizes it. And then we get it in the body. So we have to really um, get that translational research, particularly in the area of drug-herb interactions. Uh, I'll back that up with another comment. Years ago, I saw a, um, a, a study that got media attention, and it was St. John's wort causes infertility. The follow-on from that is oh, if yeah, you inject right. it directly that. into hamster eggs. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'd love to see that same study done with chocolate. Yeah, right. <laughs> and see what media attention that <laughs> right, gets. right. So just wrapping up, talk to me about some of the safe generalized therapies that you use when treating cancer patients and talk to me about some of the more specific or even exciting new treatments that might be raising their head. Well, you know me, I hate to make big generalizations, but here I go. So I think, you know, first of all, the safest and universally applied therapy is really our lifestyle-based therapy. So people going through treatment, They've got to exercise. I mean, that's just without a doubt the most important thing I think people can do. Lots of data for that. Um, they need to eat well, and really just it's a plant-based diet. The more colorful foods you can get into your body, the better off you're going to be, frankly. That's just sort of and, bottom line. And, and less processed food. And I'll put in there that does not include Smarties or Texters. <laughs> Naturally colored food. Um, and then I think the other is, of course, getting enough rest and um Stress management. Stress is, oh boy, that just unravels health like nothing else. So that's, I would say, generally speaking, the safest foundation. And that might be, you know, some listeners might be listening to that and saying, oh, you know, that's nothing. I do that already. That's huge. Mm. I mean, and that there's can, evidence. And there's evidence, and that can transform somebody's experience of these treatments and this disease. On top of that, of course, I'm a big fan of dietary supplementation. I think that there's an incredible role for. Um, ex extracts of herbs for specific nutrients. Uh, there's really some tremendous study that have shown not only increased tolerance to treatment, but better survival. There, there's, there's, um, there's. I can just think off the top of my head of half a dozen 
supplements that have been studied to double survival from chemotherapy when used concurrently with that. So, I mean, how can we ignore that body of literature? Mm. That's compelling, mm. and that's something that I think everybody should have the option to provide to, to take as part of their treatment. Mm. Indeed, Australians are, are big fans of our Barbies, and notwithstanding there's the main hot plate, but there's also the side burner, the much maligned side burner. <laughs> and I just think this is one of the most powerful agents where let's say a man with prostate cancer can get the walk out, turn the, bar, turn the barbie on, um, put in some olive oil and some garlic and start cooking the, let's, let's choose chicken over red meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can start coating it in curcumin, in, in turmeric, sorry. Right. And you can keep adding and adding and adding, and it turns this lovely golden and flavoursome meat right. into a beautiful dish that's actually have some having some protective effect. Right. And so I just have to say, now that you brought up chicken, that chick, you know, so when you grill meat and on, on high heat, you you generate these heterocyclic amines, which are very carcinogenic. And in fact, of all the meat, chicken makes the most of those. So um, if you grill chicken, but you in your house mm. on your barbie mm. have put some olive oil and some garlic and some curcumin and you've marinated that for a while so it's saturated in a couple of millimeters into the meat, now you've given a resistance to that chicken and those heterocyclic amines will be much, 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 much less. So you've taken what would be a cancer-causing meal into a more cancer neutral or maybe even protective meal. Mm. And it's it's so easy to prepare. And I caution listeners, I do not include the prepackaged um, sauces that you get that are just really high in sugar. I'm talking about just olive oil, some garlic, a few herbs, spices, mm-hmm. and they just they do the job really well. Yeah, absolutely. Liz Alshala, I could talk to you all day and all night. You have such an incredible wealth of knowledge. And we... Seriously, there's so many aspects that I could have gone down today, so many tracks. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to explore them today. So you know what that means. Yeah, I am happy to come back to the studio anytime. (laughs) And uh, if you provide me with this really nice cup of coffee, I'm yours. Which one more point. Coffee. One more point. I hope you ask about coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Just the other day, I was reading a minimum. The the lowest intake that I could find was three cups of coffee a day, and it went up from there. Yeah. Now, let's keep in mind, cup is like a four-ounce cup. So our tip, I'm uh, I'm looking at like a uh, (laughs) two-cup takeaway there. But yeah, yeah, coffee, I have a whole file in my, a folder in my computer full of articles on the benefits of coffee. And, And if you think about it, coffee is a plant, first of all. And we extract it in water. So especially if we drink organic coffee, we're extracting a bunch of flavonoids. Flavonoids are one of the most potent cancer-fighting compounds that exist. So coffee actually has been studied, and it has an inverse correlation with most cancers. So a lot of patients think they need to give up their coffee, and I actually encourage them not to do that because it it not only is giving them some prevention, but it also is keeping their energy up. And it's it's got a lot of benefits, of course, like everything, in moderation. Mm. But um, there was also a point made the other day about what a, the addition of milk, but there's an important benefit there. Right, there? yeah. So coffee does have some tannins in it, and the tannins can be a little hard on the digestive tract. There's some um, methylxanthines in coffee which uh, are somewhat damaging. So if you take some milk with your coffee, you can actually precipitate out those compounds, which is good because you keep the flavonoids, which are the healthful part of coffee, but then you decrease some of the negative effects of too much coffee, like coffee can be a bit hard on bone density, for example, so that helps to keep coffee from eating away at our bone. So, you know, that's actually the best way to do it. And again, I would 
urge people to go for organic coffee, organic milk. With less sugar. Yeah, and no sugar, how about? Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's going to be a test. <laughs> so Dr. Lee Zalshler, thank you firstly for joining us around Australia with your cancer workshop, imparting your, your knowledge so generously to many Australian practices. I really thank you personally for that. And secondly, today, for sharing that wealth of practical, personal and safe knowledge that you have. Um, and you really impart this compassion that you have for your patients. I, I really do love that about you. So thank you. Thank you. And I actually want to take this opportunity to thank you because it's really, I think, your uh, work that's brought me here. I really appreciate that. It's, uh, I've fallen in love with Australia, so that's, uh, that's all you. And I appreciate that. I also really am, am quite honored to be working with Bioceuticals. I, I find that uh, all the folks there are just, you know, wonderful folks, hearts in the right place, great minds at work, and having a lot of fun with these workshops. So it's been a pleasure. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.